Anyone ever feel like that at the grocery store? Can you relate? Can you relate? I, I think I'm the hungry shopper, definitely. Absolutely. Well, it, it's just kind of uh, just a, a fun little play here. You know, we're, we're comparing grocery shopping to the book of Colossians, which is what the study we're going to start here today for the next four weeks. We're going to run right through it, but this, this letter that Paul writes to the Colossian church is such a great source of biblical foundation that we get to draw from, and Paul's teaching to them, and he's exhorting them, and, and it speaks to us over 2,000 years later. So what encouragement we have for us today as we dive into the word. I just want to briefly touch on some things. Uh, it kind of goes in here, but sometimes we kind of think about like, oh, I already know all these things or about Paul and who he is. But just to touch on that briefly, we know that Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what he begins each of his letters as to the churches. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, <laughs> grace and peace to you in the name of God the Father. Uh, he, he writes that as a greeting and he's establishing his authority to the churches. Why does he have authority? Well, because the Lord Jesus appeared to him as he was persecuting Christians. Again, these are early Christians. These are Jews that have basically confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul is killing them. And Jesus says, stop. Why are you doing this? I am the Lord. And Paul changes his ways, converts, and loves the Lord. I'd say it's a pretty radical life change, don't you think? <clears throat> we have several applications throughout our teaching today. And I'm going to do something that most preachers don't do. I'm going to give them to you all at the beginning. So you can pay attention throughout <laughs> when they come up, okay? You can write them down. We're going to focus on them as they show up in the text. But here they are. We're going to look in the text, and it's going to tell us to pray for others. It's going to remind us that Christ is supreme. Don't worry. <laughs> and to share your faith. Seems pretty good, right? You got the answers now. So don't drift off. Stay with us. Stay engaged. We're going to open up our Bibles to Colossians 1. We're going to dive into the word. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, you are worthy of praise and worship this morning, and we just come before you now with open hearts. We just want to hear your word. Unveil it to us, Lord, as we come to you. We want to grow in wisdom and all spiritual understanding as this text reveals to us. So, Lord, use this time to continue to, to peel back what we need to know, to need to learn about you and how we fit into your will, O oh Lord. And, Lord, I just pray that if, if someone is here that has is, that is not made the decision to follow you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, would you continue to just break down that barrier? Let the truth of Scripture pierce hearts today. Amen. We're going to start in verse 9 of Colossians, uh, and before we kind of get really started into it, we realize that this is a prayer. 
This is a prayer that Paul is, is uh, going to introduce to us. And I really need to just, I feel led to just kind of emphasize a, a personal life story here. You know, I, when I was, uh, when my wife and I were searching to go into full-time ministry, we were at our, our, at our former church, serving there part-time, and, and there was, I, I remember asking the elders of that church, hey guys, I want some feedback. I want, I want to know how I can get better. How can, I, how can I, you know, be growing in the Lord more? How can I be doing more? I, I, want to, I want to grow for him. And I remember there was one elder who, who took me aside one evening. His name was Don Phelps. This man poured into me that evening. He opened up his Bible. He turned to Colossians 1, verse 9. And he read this. Stephen, for this reason also, since the day I have heard about you and your decision to go into full-time ministry, I have not stopped praying for you. You want to talk about an impact that that has on a man? Wow. Radically changing prayer time together. Paul starts, verse 9, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. He's referring back, Paul just written, hey, we've heard about you. Remember, Paul never visited the Colossian church. It's never recorded about that in the book of Acts. Um, and, And he's just saying, hey, we know about you. And because we know about you and heard great things, we give thanks and we will not stop praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Have you ever prayed for someone like that? Man, that is, that is powerful. Continues on. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Why, why should we seek to be filled with the knowledge of his will and wisdom and spiritual understanding so that we will walk worthy of the Lord to be fully pleasing to him. What is fully pleasing to God? Well, Paul continues to outline that next. Bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of of God. How are we to bear fruit? Well, Paul answers this question continually in the next sentence. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. It's not up to us. It's not my power. It's not your power. Whose power is it? It's God's power. And then seeing this so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. What's your response that wells up inside of you to walk worthy of the Lord and bear fruit, to be strengthened in his power? It is to joyfully give thanks to the Father who has allowed us to share in the inheritance of his son and his kingdom. 
Church, we need to pray for others. And I'm just going to be the first one to admit it. A lot of times when I go to the Lord in prayer, it's because I need or I want something. Am I right? I'm saying, hey, Lord, uh, I'll give you a real-life example right now. A lot of you know that we've been searching for a house. Lord, would you provide a house for us? That hits hard. Lord, would you heal my cancer? Lord, would you fix my broken arm? Make it heal. Let the, let the bones heal the right way. Lord, would you pray? I pray for my neighbor's relationship with their dad. Would you change their hearts? Let them come together. All these things, these are, these are physical things. They're real. And the Lord uses it to draw us to him. I've realized that most of my physical ailments point to a spiritual reliance on Jesus. Jesus is saying, hey, come to me with your needs. I've been there. I've been in your place. Often, we're always crying out, help me. In Psalm 61, it's a pretty good example of this. You hear the psalmist David, God, hear my cry. Pay attention to my prayer. David's commanding God here, pay attention to my prayer. I call to you from the ends of the earth when my heart is without strength. But he ends with, I will take refuge in the Lord. Church family, you you got this today in your bulletin, this uh, Colossians 1, 9 through 12. It's an application point for us so that we can go home and look to pray for others in this way. We need to have a deeper prayer life for other people. I love to get past praying just for the physical needs. I want to pray for your spiritual growth, for your understanding. I want to pray that you would draw close to the Lord and not just heal your broken finger from Word of Life Camp. Love you, buddy. (laughs) But seriously, I want to be a Don Phelps prayer. I want to be an Apostle Paul prayer. I want to dive into the word and be able to reach out to people. I want to say to Chad, Chad, since I have met you, I haven't stopped praying for you. And Susan, I'm asking that you would be filled with the wisdom of his will for you and all spiritual understanding. And Levi, that you would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And Bryce, that you would bear fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. These are the kind of prayers that I want to live up to. Will you join me? Will you radically change your prayer life if you haven't already? You know who we pray to, right? The Lord Jesus, God. And it's so comforting because we know that he is supreme. He hears our prayers. It's recorded that he even knows them before we even ask them. And Paul's about to outline for us Christ's 
supremacy. Some of you might have in your, in your Bible his preeminence, his priority overall, the centrality of Christ. And some of you might also have this as a headline title right at verse 15, but I really feel like Paul starts this in verse 13. Let's continue. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Two key words here that we are reliant on God for. Can you spot them? Rescued and transferred. The Lord has rescued us. We were in need of rescue because we can't do it ourselves. And then transferred. In our English words, we, we think of this as two ways. Transferred being either an accounting turn, term, like, hey, I transferred the money over to your account. It's now from here to here. Or as like a safe passage. I think the Greek Paul is using here is really relying on the accounting term. We're transferred into righteousness. But notice the emphasis on the area of change that is different. We're rescued from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the sun. We're going to get into that a little bit later. Paul is, Paul is laying framework. If you haven't studied some of Paul's letters, he always likes to lay down like a couple bricks and then build on top of them. And he repeatedly comes back to each throughout his points. And then we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And who? Who gives us this? Yes, you, you are allowed to talk. <laughs> this, is, this is not a lecture. This is interactive. There we go. Jesus, in him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul continues, he is the image of the invisible God. Paul is about to start tearing down the Colossian heresy that's been coming up. He starts with Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the only way our human eyes could ever see God. This word image, it's directly translated from the Greek word icon. That's E-I-K-O-N, not I-C-O-N, like on your Microsoft computer. Our eyes could never see God. We've seen references of this, right, in the Old Testament. Think back to Moses. Where the Lord says to him, you can't handle my glory, but I will show you my, that's right, that's what I pointed to, my back. <laughs> and what happened? Moses' face radiated from God's glory. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Now this word firstborn, it really confuses a lot of people. It causes a lot of scholars to stumble and a lot of modern theology that is incorrect comes about from this word firstborn. You see, Jesus is not, is not a created being. 
And people will point to this word firstborn. Well, Jesus was created. No, this is not the case. Jesus was there in the beginning with God. He is God, and he was part of the creation process. God did not react to Adam and Eve and their sin by then putting a redemption plan in place. Jesus was already there. Sin led Adam and Eve to do what they did, and Jesus, who is God, was ready to redeem. This word firstborn should really, when we see that word, means priority, authority. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. There are a couple things to highlight in this passage. Invisible being the first one. Paul, again, this is where he really starts to connect with the Colossian heresy. So teachers have, have started to pop up in, this, in the Colossian church, and they're, they're starting to say like, oh, uh, well, you know, here's God, and, and then there's, you know, his angels, and since Jesus was a man, uh, he's got to be here. That's what they're teaching. But we know that it's really God and Jesus on the same par with the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, than the angels. And Paul starts to get at the heart of this in his teaching. The image of the invisible God. What is invisible to our eyes? Heaven. What's visible to our eyes? Earth. Do you see the correlation here? You see things coming about? how he's laying framework. Continuing on, he writes about thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Now, in our human understanding, we might think something like a governor, a king, the United States of America. These are physical things that we can, we can see, we can understand. I think Paul has a double meaning, though. I think he's also referring to what is unseen. And often Paul will refer to Satan as the dominion of darkness, ruler of the, of the air, right? Jesus has authority over those things and over Satan. All things have been created through him and for him. Do you see the correlation with visible and invisible and the teaching that Paul is lining up to address and instruct the church? He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Think back, before, priority, not, not a huge stretch to think he is before, thinking back to that word firstborn, 
but he has priority over all things. And by him, all things hold together. I remember when I was a little younger, <laughs> I, I uh, watched this video of, of a speaker and, and pastor. He was very prominent. He probably still is. Anyone ever heard of Louis Giglio? Yeah? A lot of people are afraid to raise their hands in church today. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. So, so I was watching, uh, it was one of his, his tours he did with Chris Tomlin, and he was preaching on something. And at the very end, he, he draws to this, this, uh, this verse, all things hold together. In him, all things hold together. And, and he recognizes that science has come a really long way. That, you know, I think a lot of us can say that in our lifetime even, We've seen science just grow and develop into something completely different than what we are used to as a child. And through the use of microscopes and things, scientists have been able to discover molecules that are in our body and proteins and the shape of them and all these fancy terms that I don't know how to pronounce or even spell. But I'm going to give it a try. So he, he makes this correlation that if you look at a little our skin, thinking of all things being held together, that's what holds everything in our body in place. And, and he, he's like, if you go and, and take a microscopic picture of our skin, there's this protein molecule called laminin. And what laminin does is it connects to other laminin and it literally holds our skin together. All right, Stephen, get to the point. Enough with the science talk. Well, there's an image, an icon of what laminin looks like. And it's very clear. It has a head, two wings, and a tail. Clearly in the shape of a cross. And by him, all things hold together. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. I'll let you go. Go ahead, look it up. Is it irony? Is it coincidence? The creator of the universe, the triune God, who crafted the heavens and the earth and molded everything from his hands, also redeemed us by the work of his hands on the cross where Jesus, the Son of God, who is one of the three persons of the Trinity, died in our place. And the marks were left on his hands. These are the very same hands that hold all things together, that sustain creation today. When we think of the cross, we usually think of, you know, a, a tree, you know, maybe, maybe six foot, eight foot wide, and, you know, 10, 15 feet tall, and a man on it. But Jesus is extending his arms far past that, from one end of the universe to the other, sustaining life and order. So because we know that, don't worry. Be, okay. <laughs> now, this doesn't mean like, 
okay, Stephen, I won't worry. So does that mean I have to work on my marriage? Does that mean I have to work on my house? Should I still try at my job? I don't have to worry, right? Jesus got it, right? I can just show up. Yeah, you got to work on those things, pal. <laughs> Definitely. But in the grand scheme of things, you don't have to earn your salvation. All you have to do is believe. So don't worry. Don't fear. Don't doubt. Don't be anxious. He is before all things. And by him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Oh, do you see a word here repeated? Firstborn. Another stumbling block. And here, Paul is using as firstborn from the dead. Oh, no. Well, Jesus was the firstborn from the dead because when he was risen from the dead, he didn't die again. You look at other people that were raised from the dead, they had to die again. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Hey, Lazarus, come out. Time's up. What? (laughs) What do you mean? Oh, is this it? Do I have to do this again? Yeah. I just want to show my glory and my power that I have the authority over the dead. Jesus is clearly showing that in that miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Looking at this passage, we also see the titles and the dominion that Jesus has. He's the head of the body, the church. Often when Paul is talking about the church, he's referring to it as a body, a physical body that has different parts, that have specific things to do, like you can't grab a carton of eggs with your foot. He is the beginning, and he is to have first place in everything. Does he have first place in your heart? Well, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, he's pointing back, visible and invisible. Do you see it? You catching on? By making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. I think that's worthy of our praise right there. God was pleased to do this. Where else have we heard that in scripture? Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, yet it pleased God to crush Why would a benevolent God be pleased by this? Because it made peace on our behalf. To make peace. Paul continues, once you were alienated 
and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. Anyone else remember feeling this way? Alienated, isolated, alone. You have evil thoughts in your mind, road rage. But one word here gives us hope. Do you see it? Once. Before. Christ made it a priority to take our place and to make peace. Because he did that once. You were. But not anymore. That's not our identity in him. But now, he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You see some great, uh, I like to call them Christian words, right? Highlighted them here for you. Reconciled. Holy, faultless, blameless, grounded, steadfast in the faith, not shifted away from the hope of the gospel. All of these highlighted words point to a new creation in you. Reconciled you to present You, us, holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Considered righteous through the lens of Christ, as Paul would say in the book of Romans. And Paul wraps up by saying, This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. One more block. Under heaven? Paul's saying, hey, I don't have authority to go preach in heaven. That's Jesus' realm. But under heaven, the things that are visible to me, I can talk to about that. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So what should be our response to this gospel message that we, that we hear with our ears? Isn't it obvious? Look at your last application point. We should share our faith. Share your faith. Oh, but Stephen, uh, that's so hard to do. It just makes me nervous just even thinking about it. I got to go up to someone I don't know and and tell them about Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm nervous. I'm starting to sweat profusely, and I haven't even, like, done it yet. I don't know, I don't have the right words to say because uh, I'm not good with words. And I just, I'm really scared of what they might think of me. What if I don't wear the right shirt when I do it? What if my socks are too long? These are all excuses. Some of those excuses I've had, definitely when looking to share my faith with someone, you see the opportunity ahead of you. I feel like I need to talk to this person. I'm passing them. This is my chance. 
I'll look the other way. <laughs> Shamefully. Disobediently. Look the other way. It's happened to me so many times. Just being honest. I wish I had the courage every time to, to share my faith. I wish I wasn't so busy. Oh, I'm here to get one thing. Don't need a cart. Wish I made time to share my faith on these public trips to the grocery store. But why is it important to share our faith? Is our faith something that we should just treasure up inside of us, put it in our little jar, dig a hole in the ground, stick it there? We know it's there. It's safe. When we hear the testimony of Christ and what he's done for us, we should share our faith. Because our desire is for people to come to know him. That this love isn't just for me, it's for all. And that if they believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. So it's not on you, not on me, to save their, their soul with like a conversation that might be awkward for me. It's my job to be obedient. That's our job. Yeah, it's awkward if you make it awkward. But there's a lot of people that are looking for answers. And they'll tell you right up front what they think. And you're equipped, whether you know it or not, to share the goodness of Jesus Christ with them. And to share this, that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. And who? In Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now this is just one of the things that we are to do out of obedience. There are other things that we do here as a church body that represent obedience. A couple weeks ago, we had 10 people publicly profess their faith in Christ and be baptized. That is obedience. And their challenge is to follow the Lord the rest of their life. And we are witnesses to that and we celebrate. Another act of obedience as a church is that we are to partake in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to go ahead and invite John and, and the ushers. They can come on down. Um, we're going to pass out the elements. But take this, this is an obedience of someone who is a believer. If you have not professed in your heart that Jesus is Lord, this is not for you. This is a remembrance that Jesus says, hey, this is my body. This is my blood. Remember the physical things we were just talking about? The visible? It gets pretty real. Remember them is what he says. Now, the ushers are going to pass out the bread and then they're going to immediately pass out the cup to you. Hold on to them until the end, and we'll, we'll partake together. And if you're in the foyer, 
there is a table in front of you that has the elements there. Just ask that you go ahead and serve yourself from that table. But hold on to the elements until at the very end we're all ready. Go ahead, let's pass out the elements. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, and blessed it. Then gave this instruction. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat and remember me. Right after this, he took the cup, gave thanks and blessed it, said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink and remember me. After dinner that evening, he and his disciples sang a hymn together. So as we come to the end of our, our worship time together today. Let's go ahead, let's stand up and let's sing a, a hymn together. Mm-hmm.